The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Good morning. Welcome once again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery. And today I'm joined by two people. Uh, remotely from Los Angeles is John Blank. He's the chief strategist for Zach's Investment Management. Uh, Mitch Zach's is away on business today. And we also have Barry Wheelis, who is the national sales director for Zach's Investment Management for the pli- private client group. I should uh, mention that as well. Uh, good morning, Barry. Morning. How are you, Mark? I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, it's a nice day here in Chicago, and uh, we wanted to get started talking about some things. Uh, John, you can hear me okay, is that right? Yes, I can. Okay, thanks so much for being with us today, uh, remote like this. And I wanted to bring up to you, John, yesterday's much-anticipated FOMC meeting took place, and Janet Yellen and company decided to hold interest rates in place once again. No surprise. Uh, we, but we have been hearing more about a possible rate increase going back to the Fed retreat in, in Jackson Hole last month. So is there any surprise to be kind of gleaned from this, or is it just uh, what everybody should have been expecting all along? Well, Mark, the way to understand the positive reaction in the stock market is to understand a threefold, if not fourfold, uh, uh, introduction of news from yesterday. Uh, first of all, one of the four components that was introduced was expected, which was, as you spoke to, the lack of a rate hike in September. That is and was even going into this meeting, um, the consensus. So that didn't move the markets. That leave us with three additional levers, and all three levers moved the market. The, the next lever up the ranks uh, in terms of importance from no rate hike was the BOJ in Japan. Bank of Japan is shorthand for that. The Bank of Japan okay. introduced what one should consider the next wave beyond quantitative easing, to what is has a new acronym that I don't even want to share with you. It's a QQ six-digit six acronym. But the, what it really amounts to is open-ended easing. Nothing quantitative about it. You don't say I'm buying $80 billion or $80 trillion in yen bonds a month. You fix yourself around a 0% 10-year Japanese bond rate. So whatever you buy, whatever you can for whatever length of time you want to keep the 10-year rate in Japan at zero, and you tie another condition to it, which is that this will continue until Japan runs a well above a 2% rate. So they're going to create inflation. So what this tells you is that they're going to stay and buy as much as they can, not quantitatively, not telling you a number. They're going to buy as much as they can to keep the 10-year at zero and do it until there's inflation above, well above, well above 2%. So they're going to create 
inflation, and they're going to stay with this as long as they possibly can at whatever level they have to get. So that's why I call it open-ended easing. So we've now learned from the BOJ, specific to Japan, what can come after QE. Now that we've lost QE, now we've gone through negative rates, we've found that we have another door of stimulus called open-ended easing. Open-ended easing targeting this whole thing. So that took the market up half a point uh, on the S&P 500 before Janet Yellen even spoke yesterday. Right. So that's number two. Now, there's three, two other additional places. The, the, the next level of importance was Janet Yellen's press conference. And in her press conference after she presented uh, the, the FOMC statement and the, the knowledge that there would be no rate hikes, she was very supportive of a view that there was more time for unemployment to fall further before a rate hike. And she is a labor economist by trade, and I agree with her at 4.9% on the unemployment rate, you, you have at least a year of time to get to a 4.2 or 4.3% rate. So there's more time in the game to keep rates lower longer. And that leads to the fourth related point and the most important point, and the reason the markets are rallying today. And the reason the markets are rallying today is the dot plot, what's called the dot plot. Now, a dot is assigned um, in a graph to each member, voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee. So each dot, there's basically 10 dots. And they, they cluster around various levels of rates, you know, in 2016, 2017, 2018, and even 2019. And they submit this every time they meet. So it's basically telling you who is at the table and what they thought the, the various term structure going forward four years will be. And so why the market got so excited is that they lowered the dot plot. So it went from 233, meaning two hikes in September, uh, it's September and December of this year, two hikes in 2016, three next year in 2017, and three in 2019 to 1233. So that will be one in 2016, two in 2017, and three in 2018 and 19. So what effectively happened is they shifted entire year out on the dot plot. Now, this is consistent with her statement that we have more time to keep rates longer, lower longer, and let the unemployment rate fall further. So this, the market implied consensus for a rate hike is actually that there won't even be more than one or two for the next four years. But it's bringing the Fed in line, in alignment with the fact that an entire more, more, a year more of low rates is now in the game from the Fed perspective. And that keeps, since it's a long-term perspective, long-term rate perspective, that's what drives investment and that's what drives the earnings yield to stocks and that was what, that's what matters. So this dot plot shift was the most important thing. And coming with her statements about unemployment and coming with the lack of a rate hike on the short end and coming with the BOJ, it effectively amounted to a three out of four stimulus move by the Fed, and that's why markets are rallying. And yet at the same time, pretty much uh, said, well, if there's one in 16, we haven't had one in 2016 yet, that would infer pretty emphatically December is coming, correct? Right. And that took the Fed funds futures from 50 to 60% on, on the December hike and has also introduced the idea that the, the throwaway 
early November meeting. There actually is a meeting before the election. People are throwing it away, but there is now some support for the idea that she could actually uh, introduce some idea of a rate hike at that November meeting. What do you think that would depend on? What the probability of this or that candidate winning the election would be, or not not that at all? It probably would have to do with the fact that she didn't, if the election was a blowout for Clinton heading into the polls, and she had a really big plus 300 payroll number show up, where he, she had obvious, obvious uh, excesses building up in the economy, and no likelihood of throwing the election, uh, she could do that. Uh, but as she stated in her press conference, she is emphatic that the, 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 the Fed is not guided by politics, and that means they will go to these meetings and have live ammo yet again in November. Um, That's important to, that, to, to bring December, up as well. If your choice is between November and December, and it's only four weeks apart, it's obviously not much of a choice, and the risk-averse FOMC will go to December, uh, and they are risk-averse across the board, and that's likely what's going to happen. Okay. Even with more uh, Fed presidents uh, saying now is the time, we are ready, we can raise. Uh, really, what is the U.S. economy uh, waiting on? Uh, we have, I mean, I know you, you were just discussing having 4.2 or 4.3% uh, percent unemployment, but at 49 we're pretty uh, full employment now, aren't we? No, we're not. That's the point. Uh, 4.9 is is jumping the gun on frictional unemployment. And okay. That's the point. You have a long, a slower approach to a lower trajectory over this period of time. And, and we saw this in 2007. Before we tanked and moved higher, the unemployment rate in the United States was in that 4243 area. So it's not ancient history. In a structural okay. context, the United States hasn't changed that much in eight or nine years. And so you can infer uh, pretty cleanly that we have another half a point to go before there's any wage pressure. Uh, being brought by uh, the unemployment rate and wages through that. And by the way, this is a labor economist, uh, probably the best labor economist who's ever been the Fed chair, who is making these calls. And she's clearly showing something that's probably a big step forward for the Fed, which is granularity and sophistication towards unemployment so that the Fed doesn't hike too soon. And it's been typically a problem the Fed has hiked too soon, not too late. Okay. This may uh, go straight into the dot plot you were just discussing, but uh, Janet Yellen did say she adjusted her 2017 forecast and bumped it down from 1.6% to 1.1% for next year. Uh, that would basically be two quarter, pay, two quarter point rate hikes uh, that don't happen that were anticipated to pro pre previously. Is that correct? That's, that, is, that, is, that is the identical statement to the one, two, three, three that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Right, one okay. Just in December, to make sure that. two, and, and that's 75 basis points from here, and that gets you basically that number. Okay, well, let's talk about 2017 a little bit. Uh, you previously said you expect some of the very industries which are dragging on the current economy to pick up in a big way next year. I, I'm going to presume that you mean energy and perhaps utilities. Is that correct? Well, the, the consensus for the United States is that we will get some type of lift out of the oil price from the $40, $45 barrel we're seeing today towards 55 and that is enough to create profits for the energy companies and also for business CapEx spending that goes into industrials. And along with any rise in oil prices and global growth, you're going to get the material companies up. So those are three sectors that have been underperforming the last two or three years, and they will start to to perform much better. 
So that that's what I would say within the U.S. context is likely to improve. Okay, and to what extent do you expect them to improve at this point, or is it too early to say? Uh, you know, it, it's it's all contingent upon the level of the the uh, benchmark for for oil in the United States, which is West Texas Intermediate. And right. if 55 comes in from 45, then you can do the math yourself. That's a 25 percent rise in oil prices, and that's an, that's a. a a, a very one, much of a one-for-one tie-in to the EPS. So take energy at, you know, I, I'm being very, very generous, 10% of the 10 S&P sectors and 25% rise. That's a 2.5% increase in earnings coming from energy alone. So add in another um, 1% or 2% from in, industrial spending and another 1% or 2% from materials boom, and you have... 6% EPS growth that can come from those three sectors alone on that bounce. Okay. So you have plenty of reason to be bullish on equities going into 2017. Is that correct? Uh, bullish is a word that, you, you know, you got to kind of check at the door at this latest stage of the cycle. Um, okay. It's certainly the case that we have the likelihood of no recession and modest earnings growth to support the stock market's ongoing rise um, from here. Uh, but it is certainly not the case that you're going to see 30% returns like you said two, three years ago. 30% returns, yeah. And we're, we're, yeah I can understand we are in a that. different place. So bullish then was truly bullish. Now, in the context of these, these numbers, we can look for you know, a 2 to 8% rise on average over the next two or three years for the S&P 500. Right. Okay. I just want to take a time out here and say to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, listeners to The Steady Investor can call 800-249-2934. And you can discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, you can, uh, w or for more information, you can email us at ziminfo, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, info at Zach's, Z-A-C-K-S dot com. Also uh, contact us or check out the website at zimwealth.com. Um, we're here with John Blank from L.A. He is, uh, he is the chief strategist for Zach's Investment Management. And um, the co-host of The Steady Investor is Mitch Zach's, and he's away today. But he's mentioned uh, numerous times, John, that recently it's important that – recently he's, he's mentioned this – that it's important that investors understand there's much more value in, equi in equities currently than in bonds or precious metals or, or anything like that. Do you agree with this? That, that is a really simple analysis, Mark. Um, I was just looking this morning on the dividend yield for the S&P, and it's about 2% a year. And on top of that, you have what's called a buyback yield because it, companies are buying back a lot of stock, which is, ends up being another 3%. It's more of a discretionary dividend yield. So just, just on its own face, in terms of the money that, that equity holders are getting from the S&P, direct money, not even talking about cash flows. We're talking about... Either, either stock buying or dividends. It's a 5% number. So you can either get 5% from a stock holding, or you can get 1.7% from a 10-year U.S. Treasury bond. And that, that, even if you go to a corporate bond, you're looking at a 3.5-4%. So you're still looking at any, any, any comparison to either a risky or a risk-free bond of a similar maturity to the stock market and looking at it and saying there's still uh, enough juice to be had out of a stock 
play right now in the U.S. than anywhere else, and that's why we continue to see the bull market. Okay, even with stock markets at or near historic highs, you still feel there's more room to ride this this market. I won't call it a bull market exactly, but uh, ride it upward, though. Right, that's the idea. The idea is until there is some indicator between those those choices that says I should buy bonds and hold them and not stocks, there's no reason in this environment where you have no recession and you have rising, steadily rising principal values for stocks not to pick up that 5% dividend yield every year. Okay. Uh, and before we go to break, John, I wanted to, uh, to bring up something that you said last time you were on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, we're looking ahead to, Q3, to uh, third quarter earnings season. You said earnings recession is pretty much over now, meaning in Q2. Um, do you expect that we will see that earnings recession finally be in the rearview mirror uh, come uh, in a couple weeks from now when uh, Q3 earnings start reporting? You know, Mark, I think it's on the fence. I I think it's, it's entirely likely that we go to Q4 with the earnings recession uh, because the latest reports are saying that we'll put a minus 2% year-on-year earnings growth rate into the third quarter and actually get out to six quarters of earnings recessions. Now, why do I not care about that and why you should you not care about that? The reason is markets don't care about things that have happened. Markets care about things that will happen. So it's it's and it's also the case that it's not help, it's not going to hurt the method message for Janet Yellen's uh, rates to stay low longer. So the truth is, we probably will see an extension of the earnings recession for this quarter. And the the outlook, though, the, for the fourth and on, is that this is over, and that's all the market cares about. It's just a matter of time, in other words. Is that correct? Right. It's a matter of timing versus time. I mean, the, sure. the, the turn in the earnings recession is timing related. When does that happen? Uh, and as long as that timing of the recession turn is either in the fifth or the sixth quarter, or even in the seventh quarter, even sometime in the next month or two, and not next year, we're good to go with this with a bull market thesis. Uh, very good. Oh, uh, John, thanks for sticking with us. We're going to be back after a, a short message here. Um, I wanted to also say one more time, um, if you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management to discuss managing your retirement assets, uh, you can call 800-249-2934. You can also email us at ziminfo at zax.com, also zimwealth.com, which is the website to check out. You're listening to The Steady Investor here on Voice America's business channel. Uh, we're sponsored by Zach's Investment Management, and we'll be right back after a short message. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. 
or go to zimwealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to... See Gaitan at Zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, uh, joined today remotely from Los Angeles by Chief Strategist for Zax Investment Management, John Blank. Uh, thanks again for being here, John. Yeah, thanks, Mark. No also- problem. Sure. And we're also joined by the National Sales Director of the Private Client Group from Zach's Investment Management, and that's Barry Wheelis. Thanks, Mark. Sure. Uh, well, Barry, I promise I'll ask you some uh, some poignant <laughs> questions coming up. But first, I wanted to address uh, uh, John. Uh, every month, uh, John Blank, you come out with a uh, market strategy piece. Uh, it's, it's comprehensive. It's expansive. Um, and it's very, very – I think it's it's important for any investor – serious about knowing what uh, what they're getting into uh, to take a look at. Um, you can find it on Zax.com and there's a number of other places I believe. Hopefully it's on the Zim website as well. Um, but anyway, so these uh, Zax September view on equity markets, you start off by saying you're not a U.S. declinist. Uh, can you first of all explain what that what you mean by that term? Yeah, what you know, there's, there's an endless uh, literature over the decades of, you know, Walking back the idea that the United States is making progress and saying, you know, the 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 last century is better, the last decade is better, that we're in decline, and the nation's in the decline, the GDP is going to go down, and that the whole nation is never going to be as good for the next generation as this one. I don't share that view ever. So I think the opposite is happening. I think the United States is in a sense, and that's my basic view is that there's you should retain some optimism about the U.S. economy and and the people. Well, and, and you have uh, and you have the graphs to back it up. I mean, the U.S. level is on a clear rise, a clean rise, to about almost eighteen trillion dollars in U.S. dollar terms, as opposed that's to right. China, that's, which that's said the chart that I wanted to throw out there. If you look at that clean, clean rise, uh, and you look at it with respect to any country of comparable worth in terms of its newsworthiness. Uh, there's no question the United States is the dominant world economy. The only choice you would otherwise have would be China. And China's growth is stronger than ours, but all growth rates have to be tied to bases. And China's base is much, much smaller than ours. Our, we have an $18 trillion economy. They have about a $12 trillion economy. So, you know, it's it's true for people. It's true for countries. The, the, the low-hanging fruit is the, is where the fast growth comes. You know, when you're five and you're going to six, you're going to grow 10 inches a year. When you get to be 21 and go to 22, you might get an inch out of it if you're right. lucky. And this is true for countries, too. So in later stages of maturity, when there's less development to be had, it's not a surprise that your growth rate is lower. But what's clean about the United States is that the overall level of growth and the overall absolute level of income in the United States is, has absolutely no peer anywhere in the world right now or any, at any time in history. 
wow. And, and that's it's a definitely perspective worth uh, absorbing, I think. And you talk also about the reality of the U.S. dollar strength. I imagine that's uh, part and parcel with what you're just talking about. Well, this, this is where, uh, yeah, exactly. If you look to see where big money and currency markets, there is no bigger money in terms of this trillion dollars of, of, of trading value. The, the U.S. dollar's strength over the last three or four years is unmistakable, whether you look at the peso, the British pound, uh, the Canadian dollar, all of these are our, our closest and allies and biggest trading partners, or the Indian rupee, which is considered the world's best and fastest-growing country. Not a single one of those currencies hasn't depreciated against the U.S. dollar. So what that tells you is money is coming to the U.S. and chasing that dominance and that and the in the in the sheer scale of our financial markets that come with it. Now the reason I put all this together, though, is that in fact. At this stage in time, all of this momentum buying and, 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 and faith in the U.S. has probably gotten overdone relative to the outside the U.S. because there's been such pessimism outside the U.S. That, that nobody really wants to put any money to work out there. And the relative trade is probably to sell the U.S. and take some profits and, and allocate more of your assets to the global markets than you have in the last few years. And that is why I'm not a declinist, but I would be a seller on the margin of U.S. stocks. Not that I would be out of the market for U.S. stocks, but I might reduce my, my allocations a bit towards and put them to work in the global markets at this point in time. Right. And you do focus a lot on what's going on in global markets. Um, can we go through a simple little rundown on what's going on in places like China, India, Brazil, let's say the BRICS, right? Brazil, uh, Russia, India, and China. Right. Those are the, you know, the first thing to be noticed about the BRICS is that, at the end of the day, the only real country of merit outside the United States in terms of its growth uh, effect on the rest of the world is China. So China has to be dealt with first and foremost, and it's, it, there's no, there are no BRICS in this context. China matters far, far more than all the other four countries combined. And I said that correctly. All the other four countries combined still don't come up to even half the weight of the Chinese economy in the, in, the, in the international system. So we got to focus on China first. And what has happened in China in April or May into today's September is they have stabilized um, all of their purchasing manager indexes and their growth rate that corresponds with that at the 6.5% rate. And they're showing modest expansion of manufacturing for the first time in many months, and they have strong uh, growth in their services. So China stabilizing and growing uh, from that April level up into where they were expected to take the world economy is the biggest news we have this year for the bulls outside the United States. Now, along with that, Russia, Indian, and Brazil. Brazil had uh, finally got rid of uh, the crummy prime minister uh, that had been replaced another prime minister who is now under indictment. Um, and we have progress being made on cutting spending there and stabilizing that economy for the first time in, in two or three years. And in India, we have uh, Mahendra Modi, which is a prime minister that was elected two years ago, finally uh, getting towards the point of traction with his reforms. And then on the, on the fourth level, we have Russia. In Russia, 
did see a recession off the back of the oil price collapse of a, of a couple of years ago into January. But since January, again, because of the rise in, in oil prices throughout this year from a $26 level to a $45 level, all of that went straight into Russia's coffers because they're so resource-dependent and dependent on oil production and sale to Europe. So Russia is now coming back. So it turns out that all four of these countries were in bad shape a year ago, and all four of these countries today are back to a respectable, uh, uh, forward-looking expansion of their potential, and their potential is far greater than the United States in terms of growth rates. And you may see some value in equities in those countries at this point, especially after the last year of everybody saying, well, you've got to be invested in the U.S. That's the only game in town. Right, yeah, and I, I put the bid out on Brazilian stocks back in October because the problem with, uh, and I still think they have more to go, but the biggest growth return in stock indexes the last year has been Brazil. And if you bought in at the bottom and believe that the impeachment was going to happen and that there was progress to be made with Brazil, you were looking at a 50 or 60% return on a lot of the stocks there in the last eight or 10 week months. So the, the, the fact is a lot of people make a ton of money understanding that this turn was coming 10 or 12 months ago. And the, the question now is, does it strengthen or does it dissipate or does it go sideways? And the, the smarter money is that probably this momentum that's carrying out from China into these other countries is going to, to modestly but but continuously uh, increase its, its, its momentum into 2017. And this is a framework we haven't seen for three or four years. Okay. Well, I want to ask you about the Eurozone as well, uh, including whether uh, you think uh, Brexit will be implemented sooner or later. I know it's not part of the uh, Eurozone anymore officially, but uh, or the EU anyway. Uh, what are your thoughts on EU. what's going on? They, they have not left the EU. They are still part of the European Union. And Brexit was not anything more than an advisory vote uh, to guide, it was a misguided vote to begin with. They never had to do it. Right. And it was an advisory run on top of that. So now we, it toppled the government as it rightly should have because it was a stupid idea. Uh, but now we are at a place with the new government trying to honor that obligation as vague as it is in the context that they have remained in the European Union. Now, to leave the European Union, there has been what's called Article 50, right. uh, which is, you know, think about it as Article 50, like the Constitutional Amendment. It's the 50th article or, or amendment made to the European Union Constitution itself. So it was a very last-second, about three- or four-year-old amendment to that Constitution that allowed for exit of the European Union, because no one ever tried to do this. So if you, the way Article 50 works is the country that wants to exit must inform the European Union, they want to exit. In other words, you can't be Germany and, and ask for somebody to exit, and you can't exit until you officially notify the European Union. A vote is not enough. You have to be the prime minister, you have to get it through the parliament, and then you have to take that consent to, of, on getting Article 50 underway to the European Union, and then for two years, you have two years to leave. You have two years to negotiate your exit. And if you don't get it done in two years, you get whatever the European Union says you get on the back end of that, and they boot you out anyways. So the point is, until you initiate Article 50, until England initiates that, and they don't intend to do that until 2017, if at all, 
there is um, no Brexit. So England's macroeconomic fundamentals are not being driven at all on this advisory boat at this point in time, and it's all become a matter of speculation on, A, the timing of the Article 50 initiation, and B, what will be asked in terms of amendments to be made over the next two years, because the other thing to think about in terms of the European Union is it's always been, to this day, and for the Europe, for the English in particular, a, a series of concentric circles where you can just kind of guide yourself out of the inner circle to the outer circles. And so the other question is this idea of a hard or soft Brexit, which meaning soft Brexit means you go to them and say we want out, but really all you want is modest changes to the existing agreement and push yourself out of a circle or two, mm-hmm. and basically don't do much anyways. So you can also get an Article 50 trigger, and then Mark comes to me and says, you want to get a seat in a cube next to yourself versus the one you're in. And I say, that's not really leaving Zach's. And you said, yeah, but I, that's what I want. And I say, well, great, we'll do that for you, Mark, and you'll stay with the company. And nothing really happens versus you coming to me saying, I'm gone and I want my bonus. And so they say, we want all this stuff. We want major change to our relations with the European Union, then we can have a two-year very contentious exercise negotiation that can fail. So the other problem with even the Article 50 initiation is nobody really knows what terms they will seek, and, and negotiating less means less contention. So they've hired literally you know, thousands of international trade experts, and I mean, I'm not over-exaggerating that word, and I was just looking at The Economist magazine on my flight out to Los Angeles, and there's the easy way to get a job these days, if you're an economist, is being an international trade expert on the European Union in London. So um, they are still formulating an opinion on how to negotiate and what the terms should be, and this can go on for a long, long time. Okay, and you mentioned that it hasn't really affected the, the British economy at all, at this point anyway. It looks like it may be a, a positive near term anyway for the EU in general, because I think when Brexit first happened, a lot of the fear was, well, what does that mean? Who else is going to leave now? Or, or is it going to be a viable entity at all in the future? It doesn't seem like that's really even being discussed right now. No, there, there's definitely been um, concern and disappointment in the decision they made there. And uh, the, the EU President Juncker had a uh, speech to the the parliament, the EU parliament, only a week or two ago about what he felt was needed to, to restore respect for the European Union. So the, I think what it has initiated is, is kind of some soul-searching on the part of that institution to, to say, okay, we can acknowledge that there are things that we can do better, and let's go and do them in advance of this. Okay, very good. So let's put a, uh, a nice little neat bow on this. And we're talking about uh, gro- global markets. And I guess the global growth scare appears behind us. Would Is that not more or less the case? I would say so. I mean, at this stage in time, I would say that the bottom was in sometime in April. And you're about four or five months out from that bottom. And, and if things don't change and the momentum proceeds, yes, that I would say that the fundamentals have, have improved for, for non-U.S. economies at this point in time. Okay, so let's turn to the U.S. macro outlook while we have a few uh, minutes left in this segment. Um, um, any uh, initial thoughts on uh, what we're looking at uh, going forward uh, domestically? Well, uh, first of all, you got to remind yourself that 
we we always live in an aquarium, meaning that the the economy is managed, and we're not out there, you know, seeing what's going to happen. The Fed that is managing this, and they, their view is that we continue to have moderate growth for the U.S. economy as forecast for the next year or two. And in that growth that they like is this is not a growth that's going to cause any inflation. And the way the the dual mandate of the Fed works is, one, the most important thing is 2% inflation targets are met. The second one is that full employment is achieved. So at this point in time, we have a 1. 1.8, 1. 1.9, 2% inflation rate, and we have an employment rate of 4.8%. So we are still under the inflation target or within sight of the inflation target, which makes the Fed happy and doesn't cause them concern. And we still have another half a point on the unemployment rate to achieve that objective. And that dual mandate is still not met, so that's why they're still accommodative. So the, the, the bottom line is that you know, the, the, the 2% employment target and the continued moderate growth and the idea that there might, there's a small amount of slack left in the labor market is giving the Fed comfort to stay where it is. And until that changes, we can assume this idea that the U.S. economy is in a continued moderate growth phase. Okay. Um, and let's uh, see if we can get a prediction for the end of uh, calendar 2016. Uh, in terms of the S&P 500, you think we can finish above 2200? I think so. I think so easily, particularly after the election. I think, you know, you can look at uh, today, year to date, the NASDAQ, for example, you know, the more tech stocks are up five to six percent already this year versus last year. It was about that level all last year. So, the NASDAQ could get to an 8 or 10% return this year, and I think the S&P can do, a, 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 again, a, a, a 5 to 8 or 5 to 10% return itself. So I would say, you know, if you started the year at uh, 2050 and you do 8 to 10%, you know, 2250 from here, even 2300 is possible uh, on a spurt and a pullback at uh, any time in the next four or five months, and that could take us out and should take us out of 2016 with a nice return in the low single digits. Very good. Um, you're listening to Voice America's business channel, uh, The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. Um, we're joined today by John Blank, who is the chief strategist for Zacks Investment Management. He's calling to us uh, today from Los Angeles. Uh, once again, John, I want to thank you very much uh, for getting up early today and uh, having a nice conversation with us about. I don't know if you'll stick around for the last segment. We have Barry Wheelis, the national sales director for the private client group at Zacks Investment Management uh, after this next break. Uh, but if you'd like to stick around, John, uh, feel free to do so. Otherwise, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Okay, and if you'd like to contact, if you're a listener to The Study Investor and you'd like to contact a representative, you can call 800-249-2934 to discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, or for more information, email us at ziminfo at zax.com. Also, the website is zimwealth.com. Uh, so uh, we're going to be right back with Barry Wheelis after this message from our sponsors. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. 
Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners of voiceamerica.com's The Steady Investor. We're sponsored by Zax Investment Management. And for this third segment, we are joined by Barry Wheelis, the National Sales Director of the pri- private, sorry, of the private client group at Zach's Investment Management. Barry, thanks for being patient and uh, and waiting for your turn to speak. But uh, I'm happy to have you here today. Thank you, Mark. It's always a pleasure. And and I was jotting down notes and uh, scribbling as fast as I could listening to John speak. He had uh, just a wealth of knowledge that was really really helpful. Absolutely. So, uh, listeners of the Steady Investor, if you're just tuning in now, uh, go back and listen to the podcast. It's uh, it would be worth your time for sure. Uh, so Barry, we wanted to talk about what to look for in a money manager. In a money manager, and this is uh, this is your wheelhouse. So uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to say, uh, what are some of the common or ask? What are some of the common mistakes a consumer makes when selecting an investment counselor? Thanks, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And my role with the company is I've got 31 advisors across the country, and they work with retirees and corporate executives and business owners every single day, and they listen to what the, the client's needs are, and they try to craft portfolios and help manage the investments to, to get the uh, objectives right. But th- there's no shortage of options out there when you're trying to consider who to hire, who should manage your money, who, sh- who you should listen to as far as investment advice goes. And that's, that's true. That's a good thing. And it can also be kind of challenging and kind of stressful too. So to, to put some finer points around it, um, let's talk about some general concepts and then we can kind of take a, oh, a, a deeper dive on that. That's a very good idea. So, um, I think probably the the first thing that you should have, because it's still a business arrangement, but the, sure. the first thing that you should really focus on is is the concept of trust. So, right, and that's a that's a little bit of an esoteric concept. And considering some of the headlines that we've had and some of the Senate hearings we've just had, unfortunately, you still have to. <laughs> that's true. You have to wait carefully when you're talking about uh, when you're talking about trust. And um, I've done this for a little over 20 years, and I'll try not to use too much in- industry jargon, but. Uh, let's let's talk about how do you establish trust um, with an investment advisor when you're considering who to hire. Okay. Uh, let, let's look at it first along a business structure. And so, how is the investment advisor's business structured? And there, there's really two ways to do it. It can be either a broker dealer or a registered investment advisor. And the services can be the same, the investment products can be the same, but the actual business structure. There, there's some key things about it 
that you should consider uh, when you're trying to, to figure out who to hire to, to help you out with your investments. So with a broker dealer, okay, so broker dealers are held to a suitability of standard. And that is a uh, definition to where when they are making a recommendation to you, do they feel like from what you've explained to them and what your investment needs are and, and your time horizon and objectives, is the investment product they're recommending, they, do they believe that that is suitable for your investment needs? Okay. That's great. That's a, that's a good thing to, to know, obviously. Sure. You'd want to have a suitable recommendation whenever you're making an investment. That's right. Uh, a registered investment advisor has a little bit more of a, of a wrinkle to it. And again, these business structures, it's not, a, um, it's not a stamp of approval as far as skill or training or any sort of guarantee as far as the investment uh, actually goes. But a registered investment advisor uh, is held to what we call a fiduciary standard. And what a fiduciary standard means is not only are they going to give you proper investment advice, but they also have to always act in your best interest. Right. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a wrinkle. It might be a little bit of a, a of a legal jargon, but not only are you going to be getting the suitable recommendations and the proper investment advice, but every single action that a registered investment advisor that's held to a fiduciary standard, any action that they take has to be in your best interest as a client always. Their so first isn't to make themselves money, it's to make you money. The, the, the very first person, the, the person that's at the top of the rung of the ladder in, in the first seat is always the client if you're hiring a registered investment advisor because they are held to a fiduciary standard. Okay. Something, so, go, ahead, go ahead. No, I was, gonna, I was just gonna ask you the next question, which is, uh, so how about uh, performance? Performance is obviously very important too. Um, and there's some key questions, uh, and again, performance can be uh, a black and white number, or it needs to be, I think, uh, viewed at in a, in a larger spectrum. So performance alone uh, could be uh, how has your historical strategies done? How is this strategy done? How is that strategy done mm -hmm. as far as a historical performance number goes? But I think you really need to dig into that in a little bit of a deeper way, and, and let, me, um, let me describe it to you. So from a performance standpoint, uh, if the markets are going really, really well, then obviously most performance numbers are going to look good. Sure. So if you if you peel that onion back a little bit more and you say, okay, um, how did you perform against your benchmark? And, and what that means is if you're driving a station wagon, how did you perform against all the other station wagons that were an option out there? Not how did you perform against a Porsche? It's, it's not fair to compare the station wagon to a Ferrari or any right, other, or, right. or a, a cargo ship or anything else, any, any other type of structure. So. Uh, there are specific benchmarks that are indices, so they're indexes, they're non-managed, and every uh, investment strategy has some sort of benchmark to it. You'll hear things like the S&P 500, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, um, but a lot of times those, those specific benchmarks have no relationship or no comparison to the actual investments that you're holding. And to be specific, let's say that you own something called a, a small cap growth strategy. Okay. Okay. So there may be um, potentially some overlap between other indexes, but you really need to compare what is a unmanaged index benchmark that holds only small cap growth stocks in them versus your manager. Okay. And ideally, the manager will be doing better than what the unmanaged index is of the small cap growth stocks. So that that, that would be the first thing. The second thing that I would that I would take a look at is if they are doing better, what is their risk level that the manager took versus the unmanaged index? And I'll go back to the, to the small cap growth strategy again. Um, is the investment manager taking more risk to, mm -hmm. get, to get excessive returns above the benchmark? 
or are they taking less risk and still getting a higher rate of return? Now, in a perfect world, as an investor, obviously, everyone would take the least amount of risk and get the highest amount of return. Of course. That, that would be the, the, the ideal investment. 100%. But, but are they taking excessive risk? And how do you feel about that as an investor? Are you comfortable with excessive risk versus a benchmark and an unmanaged index? Or would you like to maybe have something that has a little bit less risk, possibly lower returns, but it's something that I think needs to be evaluated before an investment decision is made. It's not only about how much money can I make, it's also about how much risk am I taking to make that money. And then, you know, risk is a four letter word, but there's nothing wrong with taking risk, but you need to know as an investor, what is the risk statistics of your portfolio? It sounds like a discussion you have uh, with the person that's managing your account. It, it really should be, and you should understand that. And and uh, we've even gone so far for our clients on our, our quarterly statements that we send out, we actually uh, calculate and credit and uh, illustrate on the statement the amount of risk that is in the portfolio. So we, okay. we use various metrics. Uh, beta would be the industry jargon to measure risk in a portfolio. Sure. Mm -hmm. So we, we actually publish and promote that uh, metric on your client statements. You can actually see how am I performing against the benchmark and then also to how much risk am I taking to, to perform to, to get that performance from the portfolio. Okay. And you talked about small cap growth strategy. Uh, that and the small cap value strategy are two new um, uh, two new portfolios that were unveiled recently. Is that correct? They are. And, and they, they uh, have historical uh, numbers to them and we've been working on the models for, for quite a while. We've always had a small cap uh, strategy but it was a combination of not only small cap growth stocks, but also small cap value stocks. So what we've done is we've uh, edited the model, we've, we've tweaked it, and for those that wanna have maybe a little bit more specific portfolio, either a small cap growth portfolio or a small cap value portfolio, mm -hmm. we now make that distinction and make that open to our to clients or those that are interested. Interesting, especially that small cap stocks aren't necessarily initially uh, uh, talked about with value. Usually those are the growth, the, the small cap growth, you know, makes probably more commonality sense uh, than a value play. So it's a very interesting uh, a portfolio you have there. Uh, how are things uh, going so far with um, with the unveiling? Uh, you know, the, the uh, unveiling is going very well. Uh, and of course, the markets are always going to be volatile and we're looking at things over the longer term. Sure. Uh, the, the historical track record of not only uh, of the indices of not only small cap growth, but small cap value show that they have a specific place in a client's portfolio that's interested in some sort of equity growth. And so there are there are specific reasons why we have these strategies and why they're placed in the client's portfolio. All right. Uh, well, let's move on. Now, we're going to talk about service, too. And that uh, goes back, back to one of the uh, bullet points that we were um, uh, working on earlier. So service, obviously. So you're a, you're a client of the firm. Mm -hmm. right? And And I think it's more important to take a look at uh, what the service expectations are, what the um, potential service expectations are as well. Uh, and everyone is on the same page as far as the communication style, uh, the frequency of communication, and, and you're comfortable with it as well. And, and it could be something as simple as, can you show me a copy of what your statement looks like? Or can you walk me through what it looks like to look at things uh, via online? So the paper statement's getting a little antiquated these days. Right. So uh, having the ability to take a look at something uh, via online access and make sure that you understand uh, how to access your portfolios, what it is that you're looking at, uh, how often those numbers are updated. And obviously with online, most custodians are going to be updating them on a, a daily basis. Um, but are you comfortable with that? 
from a communication standpoint, it should be it should be tailored to what your needs are, not necessarily what the firm's protocol is. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean by that is uh, some of our clients uh, would like a lot of information, would like a lot of contact, would like a lot of detail around their portfolio. Uh, other clients that I like to say is they just want to know what time it is, not necessarily how the watch works. Okay. <laughs> so, what, so what they would like to do is they would like to hear uh, perhaps on a quarterly basis, perhaps twice a year, or as situations come up. And so I think a, a clear communication strategy between you, your money manager, your investment advisor needs to be needs to be well defined and hashed out. So there's no uh, disappointments or um, miscommunications as far as what the level is going to be and how often things are going to occur. I would also say too, and, and this is fairly standard in the industry as well, is um, are there is there an email address that you can send things to? Okay. Is there a uh, a phone number that you can dial into? Sure. Is it a team of professionals that you're going to be working with, or is there a specific person? Uh, is there a uh, protocol as far as returning calls, uh, returning emails? If things need to be escalated up, will you have access to various levels of principals of the firm, portfolio managers? All, all of these questions just need to be asked. Sure. And and again, there, there's not a right answer or a wrong answer. It's all what you want as far as a client or a potential client of that firm, does that match up with what your needs are? Sure. And catering to the individual needs and, and wants. I Absolutely. We're speaking with Barry Wheelis, who is the National Sales Director of the Private Client Group at Zacks Investment Management. Um, this is The Steady Investor, which is sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. And if you'd like to contact a representative uh, at Zacks Investment Management, please call this number, 800 249 2934. And you can discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, you can also, you were talking about an email address before, and that would be Zim Info initially for uh, for, uh, back, for information. Uh, Zim Info at Zax.com. Also, the website is ZimWealth.com. You've got something else there, Barry? You know, I, I think just a couple other points uh, before we wrap it up is sure. uh, the experience level of the management team that's okay. going to be making the investment decisions. Okay. Uh, and, and what they're not only their educational background, but their experience in live breathing actual markets. And from our perspective, I think a benchmark would be uh, ideally they've been managing portfolios for at least 10 years because that will get you through an entire business cycle. Sure. And they would have seen things that are up and, and that are down. I know we like to talk about uh, or look at the technology bubble in 2000 to 2002 or the financial crisis that we all went through in 2008 to 2009. Uh, performance numbers there are likely not going to look so great, but I think as a potential investor, you should you should have a discussion around what were the specific actions you took right. leading up to those various bubbles or various financial crises. You have the track record of what uh, how they presented themselves in that, those situations. Right. It's you, very important. You, you probably are not going to show a great performance number because the no one did. But what were the specific actions you took? Because that will give you a sense of sort of how they manage money, not only when things go up, but when they also go down as well. Right. That's that's very important to, to talk about. Uh, so um, communications, you discussed that already. This is there's whatever way you need to be in contact and however much you need to be in contact. Oh, that's a good question. How, how are you compensated? So uh, this would be probably the, 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 the key thing, I think, that will drive things as well is what is the compensation structure? How is that person paid for the advice that they give you? And, and a lot of times it's either commissions per product or it's some sort of asset management fee. And, and from my perspective, the asset management fee puts the investment advisor on the same side of the table as the client. As the portfolio value goes up, then the advisor makes a little bit more money. As the portfolio goes down in value, the advisor makes less money. Okay. So everyone is sitting on the same side of the table. And I think it's important to understand how the advisors paid for the advice they're giving. 
that's a I think having a little bit of skin in the game is going to make a lot of people feel like they're much more uh, that you that you'd be much more in tune with the performance of that particular portfolio. We're going to have to wrap it there, Barry. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, you're listening to The Steady Investor on voiceamerica.com. Um, we are going to be back next week, uh, every Thursday at 11 to 12 p.m. Central Time. And thanks for being with us. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 